Well, good morning. Like Billy said, it's great. Man, it's a packed house this morning. We're glad everybody's here today. Do you remember the affluenza team? His name is Ethan Couch. I'm going to kind of refresh your memory a little bit. On, in June of 2013, he went into a Walmart and stole two cases of beer. Then he hopped in a pickup truck, his dad's pickup truck, along with nine other teenagers in a truck that was built to carry seven at the most. He then was driving through a residential area at 70 miles an hour when he ran into Brianna Mitchell's SUV, which was parked on the side of the road. It had broken down, and there were three other people that had stopped to assist her, including a youth minister. He hit her car 70 miles an hour in a residential zone, killing Brianna Mitchell and the three people that were trying to help her, also threw somebody out of his pickup that has been permanently paralyzed and sent everyone to the hospital. What makes his case really unique is when it went to trial, his defense, the attorneys presented this as his defense. He had a fluenza or affluence. That the reasons that he made the decisions that he made, this is what's their defense, is because he had been brought up in a life of privilege and just couldn't understand right and wrong because basically he'd been given everything his entire life and there was a lot of truth to that. He actually lived in his own house that was basically a, a mansion, so to speak. He drove expensive cars and you know, basically his parents had never said no to him. So that was his defense. He had lived a life of privilege. You would think, well, that wouldn't work, would it? And you can see a picture there of, of, of the accident or part of the accident. That was actually his truck. It doesn't show some of the, some of the other vehicles. But you wouldn't think that would, that would work, right? Well, it did. He was basically given probation. He had to spend uh, some time at a rehabilitation facility that was basically a, a rich person's place, $45,000 a month. His parents shelled out for that, got a little bit of community service. Well, a couple of years later, he violated his probation. And this may be the part that you remember the most, that first picture we had. When he violated probation, his mom and him fled. His mom took him to Mexico. Eventually, he was captured. He came back to the United States. They gave him two years for, for, for uh, violating his parole or his probation. And this last August, he was released from prison free and clear. Now, you might be thinking this morning, yeah, that's representative of the problem that I see with today's kids. Maybe not to that extent, but you're thinking to yourself, yeah, they are given everything, their parents spoil them, they think they're entitled to everything, they don't know how to work. And perhaps that does represent one side of Generation Z, today's kids, those kids born 2000 until the present, those kids that we dedicated this morning. Let me share another story with you. If you have heard of Virgil Smith, it's not because he's some charismatic person. It's not because he has some outstanding social media 
platform, the only reason you would have heard of Virgil Smith is because of what he did when Hurricane Harvey struck the Houston area in 2017. Imagine, it's two in the morning. Flood water is up to your eyes. And you're pushing an air mattress behind an apartment building. You're pushing through water. You're trying to dodge the debris. You're trying to stay calm. And you're trying to rescue families that are screaming for help. And you're 13 years old. 13-year-old Virgil Smith rescued 17 of his neighbors during Hurricane Harvey. When floodwaters began to pour into their apartment complex, he and his mom moved to the second floor. Virgil said then he got a call from one of his friends in another building. Quote, he was like, VJ, can you come help us because you know we can't swim. Smith said he swam down to back down to his apartment, pulled out an air mattress that the family usually used for guests in their guest room, and went to work rescuing his friends. First I went and got my friend and his two sisters, his baby and his brother, and my other friend I pulled by hand, and I took them back to my mom on the second floor. Then I went back and got his mama and his stepdad. And then he just kept making trips back and forth, rescuing people. He rescued an elderly lady in a wheelchair. Virgil, for all of his, for his part in all of this, is just a very humble, unassuming teenager. He said he was grateful as he received that award there, a citizenship award that was presented to him, that he was just grateful that he could save 17 people's lives. And then he added, I'm just grateful no snakes and alligators bit us. <laughs> and you may be thinking to yourself this morning, well, that doesn't sound like any kids I know. The ones I know are lazy, apathetic. They just want to play on their Xboxes all day. You can't have a conversation with them. They won't look you in the eyes. They're always on their phones. And you're right. I know some of those kids too. Lots of them have not been led well. They've not been encouraged to be the best versions of themselves. Perhaps parents have had trouble leading these screenagers. And I think the truth is we as parents have been kind of ambushed by the whole technological revolution. I mean, it just kind of happened before we knew what was going on. It's like, how did we go from here to here in like a couple years? And I think it's kind of ambushed a lot of us. What Virgil did that night was courageous. It showed initiative. He solved a problem. What if we could lead today's generation, notice we, to look more like Virgil than Ethan Couch? That's what I want to talk about today. Why I believe in Generation Z. And what I want to do this morning, I kind of want to start by just kind of painting you a picture of, of the generations that currently exist, exist in our church, exist in our country. 
And then I want to spend a little bit of time talking specifically about the characteristics of Generation Z, that, that generation that, that basically the oldest of them are 18 or 19 years old, including these babies that we dedicated this morning. Then I want to look at what the Apostle Paul has to say about raising Generation Z. Some of you are looking at me like you didn't know Paul talked about raising Generation Z, but, but he did, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. But as I said, I kind of want to lay some groundwork here just to kind of give us a generational overview of the kind of the differences that are represented in this room. And I'm going to show you a chart in just a few moments, and it's going to list the different generations, and it's going to kind of list a, a life paradigm. And I borrowed some of that information from a guy by the name of, of uh, uh, Tim Elmore and kind of had our secretary kind of tweak it a little bit and added some stuff to it. But as we get ready to look at that, I want to remind you that, remember, these are just generalities. Every person in, in these generations is not going to be exactly like that. And say you were born in 1964, the last year of the boomers, and, and you were born in 1965, the first year of the Generation X, doesn't mean y'all are going to be like totally opposites, just because you were born in two different years. So remember that these are just kind of give us a snapshot. These are things that sociologists agree on. And I also want to mention up front that I'm not doing this to give you a lesson per se in sociology. That's not my goal. But my goal is to communicate the content, or I'm sorry, the context of the world that we live in. Content of the Bible, the content of what we believe, is never going to change. It doesn't change. Jesus is the only way to heaven. Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus rose from the grave. The Bible is God's infallible word on everything. That and a bunch of other stuff I could add. That does not change. But the context, the world that we are living in, changes and that affects the way that content is received and how we present that content so let's go how many uh how many builders do we have in here 1929 to 1945 we got any builders in here this morning oh one <laughs> galen you're the, oh, somebody else over here not sticking up their hand but okay so we have two maybe three maybe a couple more but anyway builders Born between 1929, 1945, their paradigm, so to speak, is be grateful that you have a job. And you know why that's their paradigm? Most of them grew up during the Great Depression. And then what happened right after the Great Depression? World War II. So that was what they grew up in. So they're very frugal, but they're also very grateful. Frugal. Hey, turn off the lights when you leave the room. Hey, would you shut the door? We're not trying to air condition the whole neighborhood. You ever hear any of those things said? Yep, grandparents' house or whatever. Conservative, resourceful. Don't throw that away. I might need it sometime. It's Christmas time's coming. I bet some of you have heard this. Don't rip the paper. We can reuse it. Hold on to those bows. We could use those again. So that's the builder's. Baby boomers. How many baby boomers do we have? 1946 to 1965. Yeah, I'm kind of at the, the end of that, and my wife is at the very end of that, so we're, we're, we're baby boomers. 
Uh, World War II ended in 1946, and nine months later, the maternity wards were filling up. And it, the biggest generation that's ever existed in the United States, 76 million people. And for years and years, the baby boomers were the, were the targets of, of marketers. And, and if you are a baby boomer, you've probably noticed as we've gotten older, we're not really the target audience anymore. I don't know if you're like me and you're watching a sporting event or something and you're like, that was the stupidest, dumbest commercial I've ever seen. But it's because I'm not the audience that they're targeting anymore. And that's radically changed. If you're perceptive and you're, you're a baby boomer, kind of watch that because it, it's very true. I deserve better is, is our paradigm. Like our parents, you know, they, 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 they grew up in that depression era and that kind of stuff where you, where you saved everything, but we're like, we wanted a better life than our parents, so to speak, and it's time for expansion, not depression. And, you know, McDonald's was franchising and shopping malls were popping up and the interstate systems were being built and the birth control pill became widely available in 1960 which had a huge impact on on that generation so those are the the boomers generation x how many generation xers do we have 65 to 83 roughly all right i know a bunch of you in here in this service your paradigm would kind of be keep it real and here's what was going on by the uh Late 1960s, the Vietnam War was in full swing, and President Lyndon B. Johnson was constantly telling us, everything's okay. But we're looking at the news, and we're like, no, everything's not okay. And we're seeing body bags every night, and those things on, you know, they'd run that screen every night with the number of MIAs, KIAs, and, and, and wounded in action kind of things. And we're like, no, everything's not okay. And uh, even though you guys were kiddos during that time, you kind of picked up on the cynicism maybe that your parents had. And right after that, you had the Watergate scandal and politicians are, are lying about stuff. And you're like, no, no, everything's is not okay. And you kind of picked up on the cynicism of your parents and, and some of that, that jadedness, so to speak. And don't tell me everything's great when it's not. And of course, there were a lot of latchkey kids during that time. And both parents were working and, and divorce became very prevalent. And like, don't tell me everything's okay when everything's not even okay between mom and dad. And then there are millennials. Okay, millennials, 1983 to about 2000. Got any millennials? In? Yeah, it's okay to raise your hand. You can do that. Yeah, go ahead and put those hands up there. Now, you're going to kind of love this one. Your paradigm is life is like a cafeteria. Life is like a cafeteria. And I know you wouldn't probably say that, but it's how you think. I've got... I've raised four millennials, or still raising one, I guess. Still lives at home anyway. And then I got one Generation Z. He's, he's 17. But... Um, you know, you kind of approach life. Life is all about choices. You want choices. Like, life is just a big buffet. You have a little of that and a little of that and a little of that. You know, you're the first generation. Like, you didn't have to buy the album. You didn't have to buy the whole CD or, or the whole record album because you could just, if you didn't like four songs, you could just pick out the ones that you like and download it from your iTunes playlist and do it that way. Uh, you Colleges, some of you have gone four or five colleges for one degree just because, you, you know, you like choices and you can and, uh, you know, coffee is another great example. I mean, there's people in this room that remember when coffee was just like caffeinated and decaffeinated, and you can have sugar or you can have uh, a cream. Not now. I mean, you guys are the reason Starbucks exists. I mean, really. Because you wanted choices. And I see this in your spiritual journey, too. You know, you, you, you take a little bit of uh, Jesus, 
and, and you take a little bit of mysticism and a little bit of new age and a little bit of Oprah, you shake it all together and poof, I got my own new religion. And I'm not saying I agree with that. I'm not saying it's right, but that's what it is. And then the last one, Generation Z, sometimes called the Homelanders. Do you know why they sometimes call them Homelanders? Because most of them started about, the generation started 9-11, September 11th, right in that area, which was also when we started the uh, Department of Homeland Security. So for them, those three numbers, 9 with a slash, 11-11, have always meant something different than they did for a lot of us. For many, many years, most of us remember when 9-11 was just a date on a calendar. But for them, it's always meant something different. Paradigm, coping and hoping. I'm a little overwhelmed, I'm a little anxious, I'm stressed. And of course, their big influencer, the electronic devices and screens. I want you to notice a pendulum there if you look. It's between optimism and caution. If you look up there, you see that the builder generation was kind of Cautionary. They were cautious because of what they grew up in. Then that pendulum swung way over for the boomers, very optimistic. And then it kind of swung back the other way for Generation X. Don't tell me it's okay when it's not. And then, boy, the millennials, it swung back the other way. Probably the most confident generation that has ever lived. I mean, you know, with, with, when you're raising millennials, you're like, hey, son, you may not be the president of the United States when you're 27 years old. I mean, just extreme confidence. Nothing wrong with that. But then Generation Z, it's kind of swung the other way again. You know, very cautious, so to speak. With all that in mind, have you ever experienced any challenges as you interact with different generations? I think most of us would say, yeah. And I think most of us would probably say, you know, and it just seems like it's more so than ever, the generational gap. And I think that's true because just the explosion of information and technology and that generation gap just kind of is there. So what I want to do for the next few minutes is I want to kind of very specifically look at Generation Z. This generation that these babies that we dedicated this morning belong to, these teens and children that are sitting out in front of me and all over the, the building here this morning. I just want to kind of focus in on them for just a moment and just kind of twofold, kind of look at the childhood, the, the way their childhood is different and then kind of some characteristics of, of, of who they are. First of all, their generation, as we've already said, began about the same time as the 9-11 attacks. Since 9-11, there have been 26,000 terrorist attacks. To the kids growing up today, it seems as if though somebody is being blown up every day. Number two, much of their memory has been of economic recession. Now, true, they didn't work jobs and stuff like that, but for the first half of the, of the century, the dot-com bubble busted in the early 2000s, and a lot of families had struggled economically, and, and they've seen their parents go through that. Number three, the conflict in the Gulf, I actually should have said Afghanistan, is the longest war ever. They, listen to this, they don't remember when we weren't at war. Graduates this year, be the first year, who go into the armed services, if they get sent to Afghanistan, will be fighting a war 
that they weren't even alive when it began. Number four, gender and racial tensions continue to exist. Hashtag Black Lives Matter, hashtag Me Too. Number five, all their life, all they've known is leaders in Washington experiencing polarization, not collaboration. All they've ever seen is, is fighting between two groups and a lot of times not very civil at that. Six, mass shootings, many of them on school campuses, will outnumber the days of the year in 2019. Last weekend, I think it was last weekend or last Monday, there was a shooting in New Orleans. Some of you probably remember that. There were 10 people shot, mass shooting, two people were critically injured. The night that it, or the day that it happened, that night on the NBC Nightly News, they did not mention that shooting till 10 minutes into the newscast. What does that tell you? It's telling me that it happens so frequently that it's almost not even being news anymore. 10 people. You and I, most of us that aren't Generation Z, grew up with fire drills. Some of you, like me, remember nuclear fallout drills. These kids today do active shooter drills. What does it do to a child's psyche when they're seven or eight or nine or whatever number you want to plug in there? And they say, why are we doing these? Well, somebody might come in here with a gun and want to kill you. What does that do? I and mean, we did fire drills. I was never worried about dying in a fire. Yeah, you'll get out of the school. That, that's all there was to it. We didn't worry about those things. But it's different for these kids. Number seven, their world is full of complicated problems. I read about a youth pastor who recently had a female student come up to him. She said, what do you think God thinks about me selling my eggs? Talking about her reproductive eggs. We didn't get those kind of questions back in the day. We didn't have the technology anyway. Complicated questions. Number eight, all they know is a Wi-Fi world. The world they're growing up in, everything is at their fingertips, literally on their devices. They breathe technology. I don't know how many of you caught this last week, but when Joseph was talking about that story of Brianna trying to get under the, the garage door, the electronic garage door as it was closing before it closed, I don't know how many of you caught him when he said, because he, he anticipated what was going to happen, I meant to video it, but I f didn't get my camera out quick enough. That's a generational thing. I mean, I would have never thought about that. But his generation and, 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 and younger than him, they think about videotaping everything. I mean, when I was growing up, there was those big wonky things before even the camcorders came along. And you had to put a battery and wear it as a backpack with all these wires. Some of you remember that. I mean, it was, and, and you, did, you videotaped like special events. Like Christmas and birthdays, maybe a little bit of a sporting event because the, the battery life or the tape life wasn't going to last long enough for you to do the whole thing. But now they have video cameras in their pockets. And depending on which study that you look at, teens spend six and a half to eight hours a day on screens. Let me show you what that looks like in chart form. I'll throw this chart up here on the, on the screen. This is from a Barna Group study. And it's uh, talking about digital input versus, for, versus spiritual input 
for 15 to 23-year-olds. The whole big box represents total input. The green area represents non-spiritual or non-religious input. It's around 2,800 hours. The little black box in the corner is talking about non-Christians and how much spiritual input they get in a year. And it's like 153 hours. Then that other box, the kind of whitish colored box there, is around 200, well, it's 291 hours. And that's what the average kid gets as spiritual input a year. What does that mean? Well, it means if kids are taking in almost 2,800 hours of content versus if you're a youth pastor, maybe even a parent or a pastor or a youth worker, you're tickled peak if you get an hour and a half a week to pour into a kid's spiritual things. That's like 45 minutes on Wednesday night and 45 minutes on Sunday morning, if you're lucky. You feel good about that. But yet, there's almost 3,000 hours outside of that that they're getting of content. And we know it's not all Christian content. And some of it's just out and outright lies. We didn't have that. I mean, yeah, we had television, but it wasn't like that. And we're outside riding bikes and doing all that other stuff. They're getting six to eight hours of content a day. And we're trying to counterbalance it with an hour and a half of spiritual things a week. And it's not working very well. Number nine, similar but a little bit different. Content is readily accessible. You know, when I was growing up, if you missed the Top Gun movie, you missed a Star Wars episode, you missed the newest Clint Eastwood Western, you had to wait forever. You didn't know when it was going to come back. I mean, you couldn't, you, you, there was no premium movie channels, no VCRs, no DVRs. You just waited maybe for years to get a chance to see that. Now it's just, it's just there all the time. Readily accessible. Many of us in this room remember when Amazon and Netflix and YouTube came out, but for Generation Z, it's always been there. They inhale it. David Kinnaman put it this way. He's a researcher at Barner. They are literally being discipled, talking about Generation Z, by their technology. And then I would add to that. I think a lot of times we as churches are doing dial-up ministry in a Wi-Fi world. Back in the day, the youth group would come to connect socially, to hear about God, to meet new people, connect with their friends. They can do all that on their devices now. So what's the church's role going to be? Number 10, they are the first generation where parents will not be the primary influence in their life. That's kind of scary. Billy and I were kind of talking about this week, and he was telling me about a sociologist by the name of Margaret Mead. And she was way ahead of her time. I think she passed away in the 70s. But she kind of said that, you know, for years and years, and she's not talking about the United States, she's talking about mankind in general. We lived in a preformative society. In other words, in your formative years, your parents in the preformative time would help you, or, or not really even help you, just about tell you what you were going to do about the big decisions in life. They would kind of tell you who you were going to marry. Where you, you know, what you were going to do for a living, the, those big questions. And then we kind of moved into a formative time frame, kind of what probably what most of us grew up in. You know, parents and children kind of make the decisions together, and, and you seek your parents' advice, and they give you input and all that stuff. And then she said there was going to be a post-formative time. And like I said, she was ahead of her time. Where kids, 
begin to make the decisions apart from their parents. And the parents are no longer the biggest influencers in their life. And they're telling us that's true because this has become the biggest influencer in their life. And Billy also told me something else that was really interesting. There are also thoughts that there's going to be a new generation real soon. It's going to be called the alpha generation, which kind of means, you know, independence, alpha dog. You've heard that term. And the reason for that is, is because the parents today who are parenting these kids now are like, they're reacting to the helicopter parents that they had, the parents that hovered over them and tried to do everything and tell them everything all the time. You know, we use that term helicopter parent. There's going to be a reaction to that where they're just going to go way over to the other extreme and just kind of push, you know, let their kids go, so to speak, without influence. And then the last one is this, talking about gender. 33% say it should be based on what a person feels, not how they were born. 50% don't think there's anything wrong with changing your body to become a different gender. I wasn't even looking for it, but I just came across this news article on MSN this week. And it goes with this picture. The article was about cosmetic procedures that are gender neutral. Medical cosmetic procedures that people are having done. It's on the rise so that you don't look like either a male or a female. And it's just increasing in popularity. So I'm asking you this morning, can we empathize a little bit with these kids who are loaded with potential just like we were? And boy, do they need listening ears and wise counsel as we raise them and lead them and teach them just like we needed. And the Apostle Paul understood that the apostle paul had something to say about reaching and mentoring the next generation remember the books of first and second timothy the books of first and second timothy were words that paul wrote to timothy as his mentor and he's telling timothy in these two books he is telling them telling him look I want to talk to you about ministry. I want to talk to you about character. I want to tell you about the challenges that you're going to face in Ephesus, this sin-ridden city. So when you look at First and Second Timothy, you need to remember that. Paul is, is mentoring Timothy. And he's talking to him about character, about ministry, about living in a sinful city. And we're going to look at just a few verses in Second Timothy chapter 3. And I know I had a long introduction this morning, and I'll have a shorter sermon part of it, so don't sweat it yet, okay? Verse 10. But you, Timothy, certainly follow what I teach and how I live and what my purpose in life is. You know my faith, my patience, my love, and my endurance. You know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. But the Lord rescued me from all of it. You know, most people I know want to make a difference. They want to make a lasting difference in the lives of other people. Most people I know, they don't want to drift along in mediocrity. They're not working for an early retirement because they don't have a best used date stamped on their foot. Most people I know want their lives to count for something. 
And a classic example of this occurred in 1914 when Ernest Shackleton decided to accomplish a feat that never had been accomplished. He wanted to go across Antarctica from ocean to ocean across the pole. He knew that he was going to need a team to do that. Some strong-minded people and some very, you know, strong physically and mentally. So he put an ad in the London Times, and this is what the ad said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. And then he listed his name and his address. Now you wouldn't think you'd get a lot of takers for that, would you? The paper said there was a deluge of 5,000 people that wanted to, to take him up on his offer. And he began to interview them. And he was looking for people that were physically strong, mentally tough, people that would be part of a team, attitude, character, determination. Eventually he put his, his team together. And he attracted the right kinds of people by announcing that, yeah, this is going to be tough. Yeah, this, this is going to be difficult. And the rewards, you might not even live. And so the, the book is, or his adventure is chronicled in a book called Endurance. And eventually uh, what happened is they launched, but eventually their ship got caught in some ice flows and it crushed the ship. And then they had to take everything that they possibly could out of the ship and against all kinds of obstacles. They all made it back eventually. And of course the, the adventure failed in a sense, but in another sense it didn't in the fact that everybody made it back alive. Paul's adventure here on earth as he writes 2 Timothy is ending. We know what he says in the next chapter. I fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. And he knows at this particular time things aren't going to end well. That the next thing that's probably going to happen to him, the only way that he's going to get out of that dungeon is he's going to meet an executioner's sword. And so in this segment, Paul is talking to Timothy, and he wanted to assure Timothy that he was indeed well-equipped to make a significant difference for the kingdom. And so in so many words, he's saying, I want you to make a difference unlike, Timothy, all the other people. So he wants Timothy to be strong, and he wants Timothy to hold the line. And he's talking to Timothy about being a strong soldier of the faith. And this is very important. I hope everybody in here will, will latch on to this. Because this is what he's saying. Strong men need to be producers of other strong men. And the reverse of that is strong men tend to be the product of other strong men. Iron sharpens iron. It's a call basically for all of us to produce Strong men and women. And we have to invest in them to do that. And Paul wants Timothy to recognize that in us as well. Timothy, you've had a strong man to pattern your life after. It's me. And you have what it takes. You have the example that I have given you. And you have a spiritual foundation that started with your parents and your, grand, your mom and your grandmother. And now me. And here's the key. Do you know what the key to this whole thing is in verse 10? You followed. Some translations put, as you know, but follow is a better translation here. Paul lists these things about 
himself that Timothy followed. Timothy, you patterned your life after me. And that's our first point this morning. You know my way of life. In verses 1 through 9, before the verse 10 here, there is this blistering indictment of these false teachers. The, these people that were masking or masquerading as, as church leaders, and really they were anything but that. And so he's saying, you're not like them. He actually uses that term, but you followed. That, that but you is in the emphatic position, and it tells us it's different from what happened previously. You are different. You followed me. Let's talk about that word followed for a second. When he says follow, he's not talking about, you know, you get in line and you follow somebody. This isn't a horse trail where you're following all the other horses up the trail. That's not what he's talking about. It means to literally come alongside somebody in a very close and personal way. For example, the Stoic philosopher used, used it as a term to denote a special relationship between a student and his teacher. Some people have translated this like, this, to study at close quarters, to carefully note with a view to reproducing, or to take as an example. So you could say Paul's saying, but, but Timothy, you have noted my life and you are reproducing it, so to speak. That's the essence. Like you think like I think, you walk like I think, think walk like I walk, you talk like I walk, you react like I walk. You patterned your life after me. You know, my son Sean was little. He's, he's 17 now. Whenever I would mow the grass, he's in here, so I should have asked him before I told this story. But anyway, <laughs> he used to follow me when he was little, when I was mowing the grass, with this little plastic uh, shopping cart. You know what I'm talking about? Like little girls push around. It was his sister's cart. Wow, that was... <laughs> That is not what I meant to say. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk this afternoon, I'm sure. <laughs> it was his sister's, I promise. But anyway, he would, <laughs> he would push it around when I was mowing the grass about eight or nine feet behind me. And wherever I would turn, he would turn. And uh, if I would stop and like wipe my forehead like that, he would stop and, and wipe his forehead. And he was like right completely in step with me. And that's what Paul is describing, patterning your life after somebody. And he elaborates a little bit on it when he talks about like his conduct. And when he says conduct here, not just what you could see, but also his private conduct. And he also talks about his purposes like, like, Timothy, you even knew my, the reason I exist, so to speak, what I live for. And then he goes on, and the second thing he says, you notice I practice what I preach. The next four words kind of go together here. Faith, love, patience, and perseverance. They're virtues of the Christian life. And he says, Timothy, you've witnessed these in my life. You've seen how I've loved people even when they criticized me. You've seen my faithfulness and, and, and the way I've carried things out, my trust in the Lord. You've seen my perseverance when people were, were flogging me and throwing me in jail and those kind of things. And even list some cities and the significance of those particular cities. That's where Timothy grew up. So Timothy probably witnessed those things. 
And so he goes on in verse 12 and 13 to, to elaborate on the persecution. Yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But evil people and imposters will flourish. They will deceive others and will themselves be deceived. And so he says, you know what, Timothy, what happened to me could happen to you. You may suffer persecution, but that's okay. You have seen how I've handled it. You saw that I practiced what I preached. And then the last thing, he reminds Timothy of his heritage and his training. He reminds him of that. You know your heritage and your training. Verses 14 and 15. But you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, for you know you can trust those who taught you. You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Jesus Christ. Timothy, apparently, as a young minister, struggled with being bold. He struggled with confronting evil, proclaiming the truth. And so Paul mentions two words here, taught and been convinced of. And those are not interchangeable words. The taught has to do with, we can all acquire knowledge and information. But when he says being convinced of, that's, that's a phrase that's talking about it becomes part of your will. It's part of your motivation. It invades your will. He says, Timothy, that's what you've been convinced of. You've already seen this, and you can do this. Timmy, you've got it. Timothy, you've got it going on. You've seen my life, and you're imitating it. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. Follow me as I follow Christ, or another way he says it, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You can do this, Timothy. So here's where the rubber meets the road. What about us? We know what Paul says to Timothy. I'll say this. Our Christianity in many ways is pointless if we don't decide to share it with the next generation. If we don't take our faith and decide to make a difference with it, what good is it? There is little doubt in my mind that Paul expects each of us to be an example to other people and to other generations. And, it mean, and he means for us to do it in a close-up way. That's what that word follow. Not like, yeah, they can see my life from a distance. This is like you're up personal with people and you share life together. That's what Paul's talking about. Which leads to two questions. Who are the examples that you are following? Because we all should be following someone. But then the other question, to whom are you an example? That's a question for all of us. Yeah, if you're 60 years old in here, there's a lot of people probably watching you. But you know what? If you're 14 years old in here or 16 or 17, there's a whole bunch of middle schoolers that are watching you. And if you're a middle schooler, there's a whole lot of elementary kids that think you hung the moon. But this is just not people watching you. This is an up-close relationship that he's talking about. So who are you mentoring? Who are you really getting involved in with their life? And as I kind of wrap this up, I, I understand that, that every generation tends to critique the generation before it or, or just criticize it. I mean, it's almost like a rite of passage. That's, that's just what we all do. But what are we doing to change it? What are we doing to help the next generation. 
Billy and I were kind of joking around. Like, like what, will, what will he and I be like when we're the 85-year-old sitting in the pew? Will, will we be the guys criticizing, you know, just having fun with it is what we're doing. Yeah, I can't believe they don't use PowerPoint anymore. What's wrong with them? That's how you communicated God's word. What happened to the Chris Tomlin music? Now that was the music that bring your knees to worship, bring you to your knees to worship God. Then they don't do that. Anymore. What's wrong with them? That stage, it looks like a digital sign. What's wrong with them? I can't believe they're meeting on Tuesday night now. Don't they know Wednesday's the middle of the week? That's when we did Bible study and prayer. That's how you disciple people Tuesday night. Who knows what they're doing in there? Every generation kind of does that kind of stuff. But what are we doing to impact the next generation besides being critical of them? I guarantee you we could use a whole lot more youth workers and a whole lot more children's workers. And I can tell you the schools, I'm just talking about church here. Schools can use mentors. They can use people come in and just read to kids, sit at lunch. There are all kinds of places for you to minister and get involved. Real quickly, I'm going to close out with some thoughts here. You saw the title of the sermon is Why I Believe in Generation X. Or to use our word this morning, it's why I'm hopeful for Generation, sorry, Generation Z, not Generation X. And yes, I have my concerns. I have concerns about my own generation too. Real quickly, first of all, I believe in them because first and foremost, God is in charge. This doesn't catch God by surprise. He knows exactly what's going on. Secondly, I'm encouraged because this generation is interested in spiritual things. They have a genuine interest in spiritual things. But the key is they're not just going to accept Jesus Christ because some unknown stranger knocks on their door and says, if you died today, would you go to heaven? That is not going to happen. And it's not going to happen because we put Jesus save signs up in our yard. They're going to investigate it. They want to check it out. And then they're going to make their decisions based on on fact. Thirdly, they are more engaged with faith at an earlier age than previous generations. When I talk to young people today, I am amazed at their understanding of faith. I'm impressed by the way that they want to worship. I'm impressed the way they want to change the world, the way they want to be involved in meaningful ways. They don't want to be bystanders. They want to be involved. They have a sense of justice about them that can be very positive. They don't want to be superficial. They want it to be real. Sometimes I hear people say, well, they don't want to give. They want to give, but they're going to give it for causes that they believe are worthwhile. Number four, they want it to be real. They're not going to go through the motions. They aren't going to pretend about anything. Their faith will be authentic. They have no interest in going to churches that are social clubs. They are not interested in that in the bit. They can get social stuff from their, their devices. They are not coming to serve out of a sense of duty. They're just not part of that, that kind of generation. They're not going to go to churches that are sidetracked by traditions and, and other types of trappings that don't have anything to do with Jesus. They're not going to. On the flip side of the connection stuff, because social media is a connection site, but it's also a very shallow connection site sites for the most part. And a lot of these kids are very lonely. 
the church has a great opportunity to provide a place of genuine connection. What a great opportunity to help people form real relationships built around Jesus Christ. Number six, having grown up with technology and and this information explosion, they are going to adapt a lot quicker and a lot more efficiently to technology as it comes along than we are. And then the last one, because of technology, there will be many ways of spreading the gospel that other generations never dreamed of. I mean, this morning, and we've laid the foundational pieces for this this last year. We're not all the way there yet, but you can Facebook Live your service anywhere in the United States. People can have conversations. Christians can have conversations with people that live in countries where missionaries are not even allowed to go into because of technology. You could start your own YouTube channel to talk about spiritual things, and you don't have to pay television fees, programming fees, or any of that kind of stuff. The possibilities are endless, and they get that, I think, a lot more than I get it. Chess or checkers? Chess or checkers? Ever opened up one of those boxes that had a chess set and a checker set in it? And maybe you looked at the board and you thought the games were the same, but they're not, right? Checkers, pretty much, you move a space at a time unless you're hopping somebody more or less one space at a time. The pieces look differently. Chess, pieces obviously look a lot different. They move a lot different. I have to understand that a rook moves one way, straight lines, bishops are diagonal, knights two and over one, queens move a different way, pawns move a different way. I have to understand all those types of things. Chess is not played like checkers. Folks, I think when it comes to ministering and spreading the gospel, we're trying to play checkers in a chess world. All the generations are not the same. They don't think the same. They don't look the same. And if we are going to continue to spread the gospel for future generations, we have to understand the world is changing. It's much more complex. It's not checkers. It's chess. So again, I ask you, thinking about the Apostle Paul, Who's following you, and who are you following? Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning, and Father, I just thank you for the book of Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and Father, I just thank you for the example that uh, Paul sets for us. Such a great example of mentoring. Father, I pray for all of us today as we we try to get a grasp of of what church is going to look like in the future, what ministry is going to look like is the more important question. It's easy to be of a certain age and just throw up your hands and think, I I just don't get it, I, I don't know what to do. But people are still people, and people still need love, and people are still looking for genuine relationships. And Father, I pray that you plant that in our minds. Father, help us to get over whatever hurts we might have that keep us from engaging or busyness that keeps us from being involved in other things, other people's lives. Help us to keep our focus in the right place, our priorities in the right place. Father, I just pray for our time of commitment this morning. I pray that each of us will learn exactly what you're trying to teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.